0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. God says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know, it's, um, it's so important that we understand that when we sing these incredible truths like we've sung... Uh, they're, they're not meant to be sung like a little kind of holy club meeting. They're meant to be sung as a, as a mission statement too, to go and, and declare this gospel that sets people free to, to others. And um, recently the board and the staff have been discussing uh, the, the need for uh, more space. Today we don't see it as much because we're in, I think the snowbirds are are away, but um, uh, we have in the second service a need for more space. Um, And uh, so we're appealing to you. We've been doing everything. We actually spoke with families that have come here and uh, driven around the block a few times, not found a place to park and left, and then a few weeks later came to the first service. And uh, we're appealing to some of our regulars, especially you in the second service, as as an act of service to God for the next couple of years to perhaps pray about whether or not you should join the first service uh, to make room in the second service for the growth that we do experience. And certain months of the year, particularly, there's just uh, no room for parking, no room for seating. We've been trying to maximize seating. Coat racks have been installed so you don't have to bring your coat into the sanctuary as much. Uh, We've been thinking about parking. Our staff and, and the worship leaders park at the Shell Station by their good graces. we We are looking at all angles, and so we really want the Lord to direct us. And so I give that to you on behalf of the board and the staff. Pray about that, whether or not the Lord uh, maybe would have you join for for a little season of time with the first service so that we can expand that and make room for newcomers. I I really do want us to be about the souls that, that the Lord brings us. And Sunday morning is not... All that we're about at all, but it is an important part of our ministry to this community and, and how we, we do gain and draw people more in that are, that are hungry after Christ. You know, some of the, the reasons why the pews get empty are, are varied. Uh, I'm so glad to see the shell crosses here today and Wayne with us after surgery. And, uh, but we're always aware of the reasons why the pews are empty. Sometimes it's a good reason. They're holidaying. Sometimes it's because there's been deaths. Today's the six-month mark of Mel Penner's death. Last week was Jesse Bergman's, and uh, sometimes people go home to glory. God's, God's carrying them. Uh, I think that that should make us ponder what we're here for, and it really it does take us beyond the the me and my my service that I want in my way and time, and it takes us beyond that to think about what what does God want as we seek to be uh, an impact upon our culture and our society and our city. Uh, With that, would you just join me in prayer as we begin? Let's pray. Lord God, if you bring us more souls, we want to be faithful to nurture them to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know that sitting here this morning are people that in the last five years or so have come to Christ. And now we have the privilege of growing them up and nurturing them in their faith. And Lord, uh, some just come off the street, no, no human connection. Uh, some are, for different reasons, just looking to fill that void in their lives. Others, we have been nurturing in friendships at our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and we invite them to join us on a Sunday morning. But Lord, we just really want to be faithful with this Sunday morning thing, that we have the opportunity as we worship to you, as we, as we gather together to hear your word and be equipped. Lord, we want to be faithful with this, this morning, and Lord, we ask you to show us what that looks like. And if you put it on the hearts of some of us to to make a sacrifice of praise by going to the first service instead of the second for the first for the next year or two, Lord, uh, just guide us as we think of building a bigger building and think of of what it is that ministry looks like. Lord, we we just want to be faithful in all the things that you've given us to be faithful with. And uh, Lord, today we would ask you to bless those who are struggling, Lord, and those that are grieving, thinking about lost loved ones. We, we ask you to, to bless and keep those that are ailing with physical infirmities and weakness and illness. Lord, we ask you to minister to our souls this day, for you are the one who has, has promised to be that physician of souls that we need. And of bodies. We pray your blessing upon us. Open up our eyes, Holy Spirit. Speak through my words. Speak and anoint not only my words, but also the ears of each person and the hearts of each one listening, that we might receive something of edifying nature to live by this week. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Before we get into the uh, text that I'd like to preach from this morning, I'd like to just uh, do some housecleaning about some of the things that have been surfacing in the fellowship over last recent weeks. There have been various matters that have been discussed in life groups and in, uh, in uh, lobbies and foyers. And so let me just share a few things. Number one, I want to share just a reminder of the scope of this study and this series. The scope of the book that Don Cousins uh, wrote, Leader Shift." And the scope of this sermon series until Easter is not meant to be some kind of an exhaustive look at spiritual gifting and of how it is that we can all serve the Lord in in the capacity that we're gifted in. Uh, We just don't have the time to do that, nor does the scripture, I believe, give us an exhaustive study of spiritual gifts. The four passages that we are referring to, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Uh, Neither do these passages give us exhaustive lists of the gifts of the Spirit because this Holy Spirit is so much more dynamic and unquantifiable that we could not possibly uh, quantify or define the giftings of God upon each individual Christian that He has indwelt. And so it's it's much more complex than that. And so we're not trying to, to sort of summarize or, sorry, uh, exhaustively study. Neither do we, are we going to go into some of the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, like the gift of tongues or the interpretation of tongues or the gift of miracles or the gift of healing. And again, I want to clarify in saying so, that does not say that we have a position against those gifts of the Spirit. I don't believe they ceased with the apostolic age, Uh, And so just because we're not commenting on them does not believe we believe they ceased, nor does it the fact that we don't see them functioning in our body life. Do, Do we mean to say then that therefore we don't believe they exist? That's not true. I mean there's a lot in our narrow church discipleship experience here in Canada in North America that the rest of the world that the Church of Jesus Christ on Earth is experiencing and if we think that we can only authenticate because of our experience then we've put our experience above the word of God. So we can't do that. We're not trying to explain all the gifts of the spirit. I just want us to be clear of what we're not saying and what we are saying in the process of this series. That's number one, scope. The second thing is the spiritual gift assessment that some of you have already taken. There's one found in the participant's guide of Don Cousins' book. There's others that are floating around that are of value and so on. And these are great things. They're tools, friends. That's all. They're all tools. They're just one little piece of the puzzle. If you were to take it alone, you're not using it right. It's never to be taken in isolation and interpreted in isolation. They're meant to be done in the fellowship of a family of believers that are speaking into one another's lives where giftings and service opportunities are being affirmed in our lives because other people see objectively what you're like. And so I encourage you to take an assessment and look at what your spiritual giftings might be. Uh, But even if you know, you may not, you may take that and you may not arrive at an exact understanding of what your spiritual gifts are, but that's okay. You might come, though, to an understanding of the cluster of giftings that God the Spirit has placed in you for His service. And what I mean by cluster is I'm quoting from um, Timothy Keller, talks about the, the clusters of the spiritual gifts. He says that they could be likened after Jesus Christ in His office of prophet, priest, and king. And if you think about it, all the spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament can be identified under a prophetic giftings. That's more the thing like I'm doing right now. It's the speaking gifts. It has to do with uh, preaching, teaching, evangelism, articulating truth. That's the prophetic giftings. The, The priestly giftings have to do with the care of the flock, the heart and hand kind of giftings, the gift of caring, shepherding, serving, helping. The kingly giftings have to do with those organizing, strategic leadership, administrative, behind-the-scenes kinds of things that are going on. And so if you think about your own life, you probably may not, you may not understand your exact gift or gifts, but you can certainly understand the cluster of giftings that God's placed you. You think, well, I'm, I'm just not that administrative type, you know, or I'm, I'm, I know I'm not meant to be upfront teaching and so on. You, you probably know. That's a good start. And, and continue to take the steps in that direction. The key is to prayerfully seek with others what God wants you to be serving in. A third thing I want to say is that godly character always trumps spiritual gift. Okay? Godly character always trumps spiritual gifts. The fruit of the Spirit always trumps the gifts of the Spirit. Okay? And that is the priority of God's word upon the Church of Jesus Christ. We must not make the mistake of thinking or of confusing giftings and functionality and giftings with maturity. Okay, Don't make that mistake. It's a very dangerous one. Matthew, Jesus' words clarify in Matthew 7:22. Many will say to me on that day, "Lord, Lord, did we not? prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name heal did we not do that in your name and Jesus said away from me he'll say on that day away from me you evildoers I never knew you I never knew you it's a comment there's many examples in scripture we could point to we don't have time but where God used somebody that was not walking with God. Do not think that somehow you being used by God in an area of gifting is is indicative of your maturity. It's a sober reminder for me that I can get up here and preach in the area of my gifting, be used by God to impact lives, but I could be walking in sin. That's a scary thought, very sobering. I must not take the fruit of my ministry as proof positive that somehow I'm good with God. That's dangerous. So God can strike a mighty blow with a crooked stick. The lesson here is our knowledge about our spiritual gifts and the the proficiency of our use of our spiritual gifts should not be taken as proof positive that I am maturing in the fruit of the Spirit. Pride in the human heart can actually mask um, the the, the reality, sorry, the pride in our hearts can mask our maturity. And so it doesn't say we're not supposed to seek gifts. We are to seek our giftings. But we must not take them as the indicative issue of our maturity. And we're going to talk about that in the Scripture that we're going to look at. I must always remember that the most important fruit that the Holy Spirit is looking for is not the breadth of my influence, but the depth of my character. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, and so on. The fourth point I want to make is simply that spiritual gifts are affirmed in the body. I kind of commented on that earlier. Uh, Don't do this alone. Talk to your spouse, your friends. Um, Get together. Start serving. Uh, Pastor Alfred mentioned to me earlier that uh, don't let this idea of your insecurity in a new area cause you to think that you're you're immature. Just, giftings have to be developed. Giftings have to be grown into. And so affirm that in the body. And then finally, don't compare yourself with someone else. When I hear somebody that has the gift of intercession talk about what they experience and how they feel when they pray, I, I don't identify I don't identify with that. I hear somebody talk about the gift of mercy, that they have this mercy upon a situation that they've seen. I don't feel that. And I'm not saying I'm a hard-hearted, calloused uh, person. I'm just saying I don't feel the way the person with the gift of mercy feels. And, And I should look at that, and I should admire that. I should not envy that. I should not covet that. I should admire that, and I should think, okay, God, how did you gift me? How did you wire me? What is my gifting? And then that's the way the body's meant to work together. Problem in the church at Corinth, which uh, Pastor Kevin's going to be speaking on next week, problem in the church at Corinth was that they were envying other giftings instead of just looking at what God the Spirit did in them personally. Well, a bit of a long introduction, but I hope some of that is helpful in this little journey of uh, studying our spiritual giftings and and talking about them in our life groups and Bible studies and around our dinner tables and so on. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4? We're coming back to this scripture a couple times, Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, we're going to look at verses 11 to 16. Ephesians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 11 to 16. If you're able to, would you stand with me now and hear God's word? Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to jump right into the middle of Paul's sentence in verse 11. It was He, Jesus, the risen Lord, who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Elton Trueblood said that the church needs a second reformation. The first reformation gave the laity the word of God. The second reformation is needed to give the laity the work of God. And that really is what this series is all about. The the work of God. The servicing of God's ministries on earth has to be spread out according to the giftings that God has given to His whole body. And uh, that's the purpose of pastors and teachers. According to Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, we talked about this back a few weeks ago when I referred to the role of pastor-teacher and these gifts in verse 11 that are given to the church. And we see that the role of the pastor teacher is to equip, verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And that word prepare, equip, is this idea, it's used in secular Greek literature of of fixing a bone that's broken, mending that, or the the fishermen mending their nets in Matthew chapter 4. The idea of something being broken and restoring it to its capacity so it can be useful again. That's the picture of equipping. That's the role that pastors and teachers have in the church to restore and equip, to correct, to mend. And uh, the first place that that equipping should be felt and seen is not out there in the world, but right here in the body of Christ, the local church. Now, hear me clearly on this one when I say it. I I believe that the first place where the giftings, because of the equipping that's going on, should be seen and felt is in the body of Christ. That does not mean that I'm saying that you couldn't use your gift of the Spirit outside in the world somewhere where you're going to be ministering outside of the local church. But be careful that you don't bypass the local church without thinking about where maybe God has you to plug in in the local fellowship. Christina Cooper this morning has been an example to us because she's very involved in our local church, but here is God putting a passion on her heart to go to Romania and to pursue a heart gifting or passion that God's put there. And so the first place that this redeemed community should shine is is in the local church where somebody coming along looking at us is gonna say, oh, so that's what the body of Christ looks like. Oh, so that's what Christians together function like, people using their gifting, meeting each other's needs, and being a healthy community, because friends, out there, healthy community often doesn't exist. Unfortunately, sometimes in here, healthy community doesn't exist. But Jesus says, you can do better, and this morning's sermon is all about that. I'd like to use four words to describe the thought process of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. 13 to 16. The words unity, maturity, integrity, and community. And so let's think about that. First of all, the first pursuit that Paul mentions is the building up of the body in the pursuit of unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul has written earlier in Ephesians 4 verse 3 about the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, that we should make every effort to try and attain to that and keep it and then he goes on to talk about the diversity of gifts in the body and the question that naturally comes to mind is well how can unity be maintained in the midst of such different groups of people in the midst of such diversity that we see in any local church how can we maintain unity what is it built on Do we all need to come from the same socioeconomic bracket? Do we have to be all the same uh, culture and nationality, ethnic group? Do we all have to have the same language only? or What is it that causes unity in the body of Christ? And the answer is found in verse 13, where it says that our unity in the faith is measured by our experiential knowledge of the Son of God. Another way Paul puts it in verse 15 when all of us uh, are primarily getting our identity and our functionality and our direction from the head, then we can function in unity in the midst of our diversity. Now I add the word experiential to the word knowledge that Paul is using, and that's because Paul does that. You see, the most common New Testament word for knowledge is the word gnosis. Gnosis. But Paul here, as in several other places in his letters, does not just use the word knowledge, gnosis. He uses a little prefix that's called epignosis. And epignosis is a very interesting word. Let me define it according to Kittle's Theological Dictionary of New Testament Words. It says that it is a knowledge more closely tied to perceiving and understa- understanding something by personal observation or experience. So so this knowledge, this epignosis, is different than just knowledge. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Our unity in the faith is measured by our epignosis, our experiential knowledge of Jesus, the Son of God. It's not to know about Jesus, it's to know Jesus. It's not head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. It's not doctrinal understanding, it's experiential understanding of that doctrine. And even though our unity in the Spirit, in our common faith, depends on the undiluted truth about Jesus historically, it does not stop there. It is rather a personal, intimate, experiential, and ongoing knowledge of Jesus Christ because of His Spirit who indwells us. That's why Jesus used the analogy of the vine and the branches. He is in us and we are in Him in a way that is so experientially, organically united that we can't just talk about Jesus without really knowing Jesus. I think that as evangelicals, we can talk the talk, but the walk, the experience can be lacking sometimes. And now this has huge implications upon the local church and how we grow forward in unity. I like to think about it in terms of having two circles. There's the primary circle, and then there's a secondary circle. Now in my primary circle, I will only place what is absolutely essential for me to fellowship with another believer. These are things these are things in my primary circle and you have your primary circle too. These are the things that I will 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 choose to demand if I'm going to be in fellowship, give my heart to someone else in in prayer, in communion, in worship and so on. These are essentials. The secondary circle is way bigger and in that place, I will put things that that I feel strongly about maybe, but other believers in Jesus Christ that I have unity with in the primary circle, they're out there and they have different opinions about those things. And I will choose to fellowship with them though I disagree in their interpretation of some scripture, in their behavior or in their practice or in their beliefs. These are gonna, things that we, we have to... Our unity is not built on the secondary circle. Our unity is built on the primary circle. So what do I put in the secondary circle? Well, now you're, now you're going to test me, aren't you? Now you're going to wonder, take notes here, see what's in the secondary circle. Well, you know, you, you probably could guess. You could probably list your own things that are in the secondary circle, your style of worship, your preferred music style, your your belief about the end of the age and prophecy. I'll put that in the secondary circle. The role of women in the home or the church, a believer's use of alcohol, how to observe the Lord's Day, how to dress modestly, what you believe about spiritual gifts, how churches should govern themselves. I'll put all that stuff in the secondary s- circle. And I I know people very well that I am... We're totally different in the secondary circle. But I can have fellowship with them. What does Paul say about the primary circle? Paul says that our unity in the faith is all about our epignosis in the Son of God, our knowledge, our experiential knowledge about the Son of God. That's key. That's, if we don't have that right, I can't fellowship. I choose not to fellowship with people that don't have Jesus Christ in His place. And uh, that's why whenever I have people come to my door, whether they're Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or some other group, I don't want to talk about other things. I just want to talk about Jesus. He is the key. And, um, and we know Him through what the Scriptures reveal. So there is, there's objective knowledge about Jesus that is absolutely... Can't, I can't play around with this, death and resurrection, ascension, return, etc., And there's subjective experience of knowledge of Jesus, His indwelling Spirit, His answered prayer, His will of God for me. All of these experiential knowledge of Jesus is also very important to believe in that for our unity. And so that's number one. Secondly, the truth of finding our unity in Christ is underlined by Paul with the second word, the word maturity, also in verse 13. He says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Same word that's used in Colossians 1.28 where Paul says that we labor with all of His energy so powerfully working in us so that we can present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal, maturity. Maturity. And once again, we go back to our introduction when we talked about spiritual gifts not being a measurement of our maturity. It's dangerous in the local church to look upon believers who seem gifted in some capacity and thrust them into leadership or service or ministry purely based on that external evaluation. Instead, Paul teaches that our evaluation of a person's maturity and their readiness to minister should be the character of Christ. That's what he says, until we all reach maturity, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, the Christ-likeness. That's our goal. That's maturity. We don't put people in positions of service or leadership or ministry purely based on ability or external charisma or something. We should be looking at the character of Christ-likeness. And so when we examine this, do they they evidence the gentleness of Jesus, the courage of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the love of Christ? Do we see a heart for service or only the abilities to serve? Do we see humility? How does that person respond to correction? Are they teachable? Must things always go their way for them to play the game? Is this a person that is a team player with the rest of the body? Do other people find this person constantly prickly? Do they leave in their wake a series of relational casualties? Are others around always to blame, or do they take responsibility and admit when they're wrong and take the steps to reconcile? Do they have an overinflated view of their role in the body. How do they respond if they go unappreciated or overlooked and someone else is in the spotlight? Is that the basis of their involvement? You see, these are things that have to do with Christ-likeness or to take it in another direction as Paul does in verse 14. Does this person evidence a love for God and His Word? Are they grounded enough in the truth of God so that they are not like infants tossed back and forth in the waves, blown in here, by every, here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. You see, on different areas and fronts, I think I could speak all afternoon today about people that I have known throughout 30-plus years of ministry that have disqualified themselves, essentially, because of just immaturity, just not not pursuing Christ-likeness, blind spots, stubborn streaks, pride, imbalanced biblical truth beliefs. And what happens is not just that they suffer, but the body of Christ suffers. I imagine each one of us could just use that analogy of, of the body and just think of your own body. For a moment right now. Just think of your own body. When you think about it, if one part of that body is sick or, or immature, for some reason suffering, the whole body suffers. I don't know whether it's whatever it might be for you. It could be your back. It could be your immune system. It could be your joints. It could be a weak stomach. It could be your nerves. It could be migraine headaches. I don't know what it is in your body. I know what it is in my body. And when one part of the body is suffering, immaturity, weakness, debilitating symptoms, it affects the whole body. Can't do what we're called to do. So maturity is measured in our growth in Christ likeness. That's the second point that Paul makes. Next, I would like to move on and talk about how to counteract this propensity for us as individuals to be immature. And God has placed us in the body, God has placed us as part of the church to help us grow and address these propensities toward immaturity, to blind spots, to not becoming Christ-like. He's put you and I together to help us each other do that, if we function the way He calls us to. And the way He calls us to is reflected in verse 15. He says that instead of that immaturity, that childlike being tossed all over the place, instead of that, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up. If you're not speaking the truth in love, church, you won't grow up. Do you know what? The literal rendering of those three words is three words in the Greek text. It means truthing in love. Have you been truthing in love this week? Truthing in love has all kinds of applications, all kinds of places in the body where truthing in love should take place. We're not good at it. We run from it. The natural self tries to hide. We don't want a truth in love because that's vulnerable. That enters the world of relational messiness, muckiness. It's, a, it's a not a nice place to be. I'd rather quarantine myself back into the suburbs of my private life and keep you out there, and I will join a church club, but I will not join community. Truthing in love is the only way, God says, that you'll grow up in your faith, and I'll grow up in mine. And you need me and I need you to do this, to do it well. Blaise Pascal, I think it was, who said it is, is wrong to promote love at the expense of truth as it is to promote truth at the expense of love. In Jesus, we see love and truth perfectly in balance. And they should be pursued by us as the seamless tunic that Jesus wore, love and truth. You will lean one way or the other, and you know yourself. You know whether you're going to lean over toward the love so much that you'll compromise on the truth or whether you're going to lean to the truth so much that you're going to compromise on the love. You know yourself. But it's truthing in love that you grow up, not, not one or the other. And how does this work itself out? Well, you know perhaps where you need to start. It's, it's going to be in your family. It's going to be in your close, trusted Friendships. I don't think God's going to call you to truth in love with some stranger in the local church family. Some people think that this gives them license to confront. I got the gift of confrontation. See, I don't think that's the way truthing in love is to start. I think actually truthing in love means start with your own stuff. Start by talking to that, another person about your own fears. Instead of hiding them at home, why don't you talk about how, how, how nervous you are about how your children are going to turn out? Talk, talk about how, how your marriage is not going the way you'd like it to go. Talk about how prayerless your life is. Truthing in love means that you talk about your temptation when you're alone at night and the internet's on. Truthing in love means that you start and you open up your life and, and then let, give, give the gift of second. Let them be second. Let them reciprocate and see how the body of Christ gets built up. But see, we run from that. Now, this is one of the reasons why we we believe in life groups. We believe in Bible study, prayer groups, and so on. We believe in fellowship. We don't believe that we can grow strong disciples without healthy relationship. But it requires truthing in love. Let me read to you a quote from... uh, George Whitfield, who was a leader of the Great Awakening um, a few hundred years ago, he wrote to some of the converts. There's no way he could keep up to shepherding all these people that were coming to Christ in the, during the Great Awakening. And he wrote to them, and he said this, "'My brethren, let us plainly and freely tell one another what God has done to our souls.'" To this end, you would do well, as others have done, to form yourselves into little companies of four or five each, talking about small groups, and meet once a week at least to tell each other what is in your hearts, that you may also pray for, comfort each other as you shall require. None but those who have experienced it can tell the unspeakable advantages of such a union and communion of souls." None, I think, that truly loves his own soul and his brethren as himself will be shy of opening his heart in order to have their advice, their reproof, their admonition, and their prayers as occasions require. A sincere person will esteem it as one of the greatest blessings. Truthing in love. Truth and in love. Well, let's go finally to the last point, and that is that the last word is community. What is important for us to see is that Christ does not arrive, the church does not arrive at community without first pursuing the three other conditions, okay? The climate control that must be attained in the body of Christ of unity and maturity. Unity in the sense of understanding that what's essential is that we both have a faith in and an experiential knowledge of the Son of God. That's what I need unity in. Secondly, maturity in the sense that you and I don't get deceived by other things that might think we're really getting there, but rather it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the character of Jesus. Christ-likeness is the measure of our stature of maturity. And thirdly, this idea that we will grow with integrity when we truth in love with each other in different ways and at different capacities. And that when those three things are pursued, then we can actually have community with each other. The way that perhaps our souls long for. Without those things, like I said earlier, we might be club members together, but we're not community in Christ. And so what does community look like? Well, verse 16 tells us, Paul says, From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Community is the unity in diversity and diversity in unity. Community happens when each of us sees the part in the body that we're meant to play and that the body gives us space to play it. Community happens when we respect what someone else is, re- is, is meant to be doing in the body, and we give them space to do it. Don Cousins, in chapter 8 of his book, talks about God being not a user of people, not a taker, but a giver. And he says that God does not make withdrawals from people's lives. God makes deposits in people's lives. And he made, he made the, the biggest deposit in our lives when he gave his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to give us salvation. And he made another huge deposit in our lives when he gave us the Holy Spirit who would indwell us, the Spirit of Jesus, to be with us forever. And then along with that Spirit, he gave us this third huge deposit when he gifted every believer with this ability to actually serve his kingdom and build up his body. And so the question that I want you to think about is, that's the way God intends you to make deposits in the lives of others. God wants you to be a giver, not a taker. God wants you to make deposits, not withdrawals, in the lives of those around you. So the question that we conclude with is, is, who are the people in your life where you're making deposits? Not withdrawals. How is the Spirit of God using you? And, and how are you depositing? Because that answer to that question should align with your spiritual gifting. Let's pray. Could the worship team come? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your grace in our lives, the grace that evidences itself in gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we... Uh, We confess that we, as as a local church, have a long way to grow in this ability to really measure our maturity, to grow in truthing, in love, and to be the community of Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd take us further and deeper so that we might reflect you to this world and give you glory and build one another up as you have called us to in Jesus' name.